the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I know a place where we can go to lay the troubles down, eating your soul. I know a place where mercy flows. Take the stains, make it wider than snow. Like a tide, it is rising up deep inside a current that moves and makes you come alive. Living water that brings the dead to life. This is Crosswalk. With Gino Geraci. Hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. I'm so glad you could join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we typically take your calls and answer your questions about the things you care the most about. We ask and answer questions about God and the historical Jesus, about the Bible, about worldviews and world religions. We talk about the past, which incorporates history. We talk about the future and the subject of prophecy. But every once in a while, we talk about the here and the now. And we have authors, artists, guests who are making a difference in the kingdom of God and the body of Christ. Joining me is Dr. Donald Sweeting. He is the Colorado Christian University Chancellor, former president of Colorado Christian University. Uh, Don Sweeting has posted uh, an article at Fox News. He's actually posted several articles, but also at the Centennial Institute. Uh, Dr. Don Sweeting, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Gina. Well, it's great to have you, and I had the great privilege of reading uh, the article that you first published at Fox News and later republished at the Centennial Institute. Um, you were talking a little bit about the response of American colleges and university ca- campuses to the to the to the mass murder, burning, raping, abducting of Israel of Israelis by Hamas. But in the second paragraph, you said something that stunned me, alarmed me, amazed me. In the second paragraph, you said the war against Israel has provided a window into the ugly side of higher education. And the moment I read it, I couldn't help but thinking, Don, it's not the only window. It seems to be that this this event has opened several windows about Jew hatred, hatred towards Jews, not just in universities, but around the world. But to your point, what prompted you to to write this uh, op-ed? Well, I've written, like you said, I've written several. And uh, what prompted me is the same reason that prompted us to speak out as a university immediately mm-hmm. after. And, and in that way, I think we were one of the few universities in the United States to do that, that this is not okay. That this, and, and that this is not a minor thing. We knew right away that it was it was a major major event that could be actually a turning point uh in in history for our mm-hmm. country and for uh so we we jumped on it uh, uh just as you know what seeing crowds 
in different parts of the world just shouting, gas the Jews. I'm thinking this is, what, 78 years after the Holocaust, mm-hmm. and it really, we're here again? Um, and I don't want uh, the Church of Jesus Christ to have any part of that. Uh, I want us to be not only praying for what's happening, but speaking up for uh, the Jews. They're the relatives of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Uh, uh, and and this um, this has no should have no part uh, anywhere. But I just want to remind people it shouldn't have any part among Christ followers. And I I know well maybe I'm wrong, but let me just ask you kind of a hard question, and that is expectation. The the question of expectation was it your expectation that the elite academies of academia, higher education would have a thoughtful response, a moral response, a morally clear response to what happened. Were you shocked by their silence, or were you actually, um, I guess the word I'm looking for is, I'm stunned to even ask it, that, that it just now becomes clear that higher education it is irredeemable that that the moral relativity the cancerous rot is so deep how do you come back from that kind of deep cancerous moral ambiguity well i i was shocked and i wasn't shocked i mean you know i was shocked that you have so many universities and colleges and they're they're the administration is saying nothing right. nothing i was deeply disturbed that many Christian universities were saying nothing, as if they were waiting to, you know, to see how this shakes out, or if this is going to be a big story, or, you know, isn't there the moral equivalence between Hamas and, and Israel, those kind of things. And I, I, was, I was really disturbed by, by that. Um, but I, in a way, I wasn't disturbed by, uh, I, I wasn't shocked by what was happening on secular campuses, because they gave up the whole idea of teaching character moral formation a long time ago, and they were very upfront about it. All we need is to teach, you know, subjects, and uh, and so we've raised a generation that um, they they don't they don't have a, a moral compass. They're studying science and technology, and uh, that that's all missing. So, you know, and like I said in the article, there have been lots of warnings. You, know, you go back to C.S. Lewis and Abolition of Man, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Closing of the American Mind, or or even uh, Harry Lewis, the dean of Harvard College, former dean, uh, 30 years ago, just said, Harvard does not touch the character issue. It won't, because uh, it's not even sure what moral touchstones there are. And, and I'm thinking, really? I mean, what a slide for Harvard. But if that's where American higher education is, we're in trouble. So I think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that uh, our universities are not what they said they are. And uh, will they ever regain the confidence that people had in them before now? I don't know. Yeah, what I see, you know, when you wrote that, the war against Israel has provided a window into the ugly side of higher education. I thought for a moment that maybe 
the not just that the window is closed, but someone has blackened the window. They refuse mm. to actually look out the window. And one of the things that, that you know, you, you put your historian hat on in this article, and I loved it, because you begin to talk about some of the deeper issues. And, of course, the deep issue that Alan Bloom brought out that you quote in your article um, that he said in 1987, almost ev- every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. Now, I guess what I want to ask you is, Bloom says that in 1987 about the secular campuses. Is there a case to be made that more and more Christian universities are succumbing to the cultural belief that truth is relative? Well, those are two questions. So let me talk about the first one. Okay. First, uh, so uh, the secular humanism that has been the mo of colleges and universities uh, for you know thirty, forty, uh, fifty years uh, uh, has not produced what they were hoping it would produce. Uh, liberalism uh, has not produced a generation of students, yeah, that have have a, have a, a moral sense, uh, and it's gotten worse because of the ascendant Marxism in the universities. Second question is: Are Christian universities sliding into that? Well, yeah, uh, I think I think some are. Uh, Colorado Christian University is not, and we mm-hmm. will fight to make sure it doesn't. I was talking to somebody the other day who was touring a Christian university that had Christian in their middle name, and the the tour guide said, "Oh, the the the, the word Christian can mean whatever you want it to mean here at our university," and that you know that's just a signal like slide, big slide. We're we're in trouble. Um, there's much of that. Yeah, and I'm so glad to hear you say that, Dr. Don Sweeting, because I know that people listening to this program they're wondering: Is there any place that I can send my my child to get a quality education, retain their faith, and produce or at least encourage principal character development? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Well, our our model at TCU is confidence, character, Christ-centered faith, and it's a very old model. It's what gave birth to the university system, and it it produces great fruit. Can you stay with me one more segment? Yes, sir. Thank you, Dr. Don Sweeting. This is Gino Geraci. I'll be right back. This is Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me. I'm with Dr. Donald Sweeting. He's the uh, Colorado Christian University Chancellor. He's he's posted, if you will, a must-read op-ed at Fox News and also at Centennial Institute and um, about the response of colleges and university campuses to the murder, burning, raping, and abducting of Israelis by Hamas. And before we continue our conversation, Don, how can people find this article? Should they go to Fox News? Can can they? Well, I get the Centennial Institute newsletter. Um, do, you, do how can people get the Centennial uh, Institute newsletter or uh, access this this op ed? Yeah, you can access the op ed by going to Fox News and just in the search, just type in Donald Tweeting, and uh-huh. there are a number of of uh, op-eds that I wrote that'll come up, but this should be the latest. And Centennial Institute, 
just go to uh, just uh, Google Centennial Institute. Okay. You should be, look for the Centennial Review, the latest edition. It's there yeah. as well. It's great. It's also on my, uh, I have a blog uh, that I've posted there as well. Okay. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the shock, and you even asked the question, how can we be so shocked about the warning signs? And you go on in the article um, to suggest, um, you, you know, you ask the million-dollar question, how, yeah, how do, do we, we fix what is broken in higher education? How do we fix what is broken in higher education? Oddly enough, and, and, and Don, you know that there are people who are basically asking a different kind of a question. It is which higher education are we talking about? Because right. because you, 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 you in this article, you, you say something that I find really interesting. It, you say, in too many places, ideology has become more important than scholarship. But what I'm wondering is, for, the, for those of us who embrace a biblical worldview... That in and of itself is an ideology. Doesn't it, it? Isn't there such a thing as guided and misguided ideology in, in, in our pursuit of scholarship? Well, I think you know. Start with some some basic things that I, everybody should care about this, Christian or not. Uh, we have to protect students. So right now, Jewish students at universities and college because mm-hmm. they're being threatened. Uh, and we need to protect free speech. I'm not against protests. I'm right. not against uh, um, somebody saying, you know, Israel's wrong. I, I totally disagree with them. Uh, but the leaders of the university speak with a moral voice. And universities, I believe, uh, have to uh, think through this issue of moral formation. Uh, again, they got to come back to it. They're seeing how, how empty it is. I mean, I sometimes think about this. How did it happen that the most educated nation in the world in the 1930s produced the Third Reich? Right. Right? About that. So, so I mean, they were, Germany was the most educated nation in the world. Every, everybody followed their, their university model. And yet something was radically missing. And we're seeing the same thing play out today. And I think we, we have historical examples to tell us that mere education is not enough. Just trying to produce competence in in students is not enough they need some kind of moral formation how do you do that well you know some have said teach ethics courses i think you have Mm -hmm. to be more specific that's a start or go back to the liberal arts which focuses on critical thinking i think that's that's somewhat helpful Mm -hmm. um i think i think we need more than that i think we have to question the radical skepticism that's been promoted by the academy that says there's no objective truth and there's no objective moral right and wrong. Uh, we don't live that way. Nobody lives that way. And yet this has been sort of the, the um, ideology of, of the last uh, 30, 40 years. And, it, and it's coming up short and it's showing. I'd go further and say, uh, specifically, we need to return to the Judeo-Christian tradition, which alone has the ethical and spiritual roots to restore mm-hmm. our moral identity and the foundations of our civilization. And that means teaching the Bible. Now, some people go, you can't do that at a secular public university. Well, you can. You can teach. Students are biblically illiterate. At least teach them so they know the foundations of our civilization. Teach it as mm-hmm. literature. You know, I hope more will happen because I, I don't believe the Word of God returns void. But uh, start there. 
And and if schools just refuse to do that, de- work to defund them and put your money elsewhere. Uh, and and this is where I think uh, Christian faithful Christian higher education uh, offers some of the best uh, education available today. It's the most vibrant model because it teaches not just competence but character and then a rooted faith that's at the heart of it. And for us, you know, it all comes back to Jesus Christ. Yes, and so I'm thinking about what you're saying that. If I send my child to Cornell, if I send my child to Harvard, if I send my child to Yale, the chances are I am sentencing them to commit ideological suicide. Well, they're they're sort of like the churches in Revelation. You know, they had the reputation for being great, but they weren't, and uh, they've got this this status still and everything, but they've gutted. Uh, in the in the undergraduate program, you you don't get uh, uh, the humanities, a robust humanities program like you used to. You don't get the liberal arts like you used to. You don't get Western civilization. Yeah, you you don't get a belief in goodness, beauty, and truth, and and, and how those things have affected literature and can ennoble the human spirit. They've given up on that. So you'll get you'll be with a lot of bright people, and you'll you'll get some good connections. But you're not going to get a good education. You know, I heard a comedian, he was tongue-in-cheek, he said that Hezbollah and Hamas can still differentiate between men and women. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about this, again, radical ideological fundamentalism, but it's a kind of a fundamentalism that's literally detached from from biblical reality and moral reality. Um, what would you say to the person who's who says, well, you fundamentalists, um, you want to bring about Christian nationalism, um, which the current speaker has been accused of. Do you, do you have any thoughts on how a return to morality and objective, what, what we call the correspondence theory of truth, isn't an abandonment of constitutional government? Well, I'm not saying abandon our Constitution at all, uh, but these days the Christian nationalist label is thrown at anybody who disagrees really with the progressive left who's coming from a Christian background. Uh, we, we, the United States is a, a, a nation with a, that believes in religious liberty. It's our First Amendment. Uh, so, But it was deeply shaped by a faith and a morality. And you read the, the writings of the first two presidents of the United States, and they said, this whole order and, and constitutional deal isn't going to work without a moral and religious people. And they were thinking of the Judeo-Christian religion. So we have gone way the other extreme. We won't even touch it, and, and we're paying the price for it. There's, there's a way to, to embrace uh, truth without, you know, uh, setting up a explicitly Christian state. I don't know anybody or very few who are calling for a Christian state. I'm not. Yeah, neither am I. And again, you are a historian and a reformed theologian. Doesn't it break your heart that Harvard and Yale were established to be beacons to train men and women to be disciples of Jesus and then to send them out into the world to prepare the world to, to prepare them for a lifetime of ministry? 
Well, it does. Uh, you know, that, that's the great tragedy. But it's a testimony to the fact that all things are running down and we naturally drift. And you've got to come back to affirm the faith that you hold and understand it and pass it to the next generation. Well, I am glad that at Colorado Christian University, there's still men and women who are preparing other men and women for a lifetime of ministry. <laughs> well, me too. That's the joy of my life. And we're excited about things that are happening here. Um, but we live in, in amazing times. It's time to let your light shine. Don Sweeting, thanks so much for being my guest. Go to Fox News. Go to the Centennial Institute to read his articles. Again, thanks so much for being my guest. Thanks, Gino. God bless you. Now, back to Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I just had a great conversation with Dr. Don Sweeting at Colorado Christian University. And again, want to just encourage you that if you get a chance to see his op-ed at Fox News, go there. And also at the Centennial Institute, I am a regular person who receives the Centennial Institute. So um, updates. You know, we were talking a little bit about Christian character formation, if you will. And imagine if you're living in a world of moral relativity where right, wrong, good, and evil become a matter of preference or feeling, it makes perfect sense to me that it's untethered. It's, 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 te- it's not tethered to something substantial, real, permanent. And this is why I, I, I love to say that, um, that, that when we talk about character, we have to have a, a sort of a frame of reference. And so what does the Bible say about Christian character? And again, we have to define our terms. What do you mean by character? And for many, many people, character is made up of a number of different adjectives that we would use to describe people. But also we might think of character as strength of moral fiber. In in other words, character is defined by conviction, moral conviction. You know, someone has once said that opinions are the things that we hold. Convictions are the things that hold us. It was A.W. Tozier who described character as, quote, the excellence of moral beings, unquote. As the excellence of gold is its purity, and the excellence of art is its beauty, so the excellence of man is his character. So imagine when you're thinking about these terms, purity, beauty, excellence. When we think of persons of character, we think of their honesty, their ethics, and charity. And when I use the word charity, I mean it in the biblical sense. Agape, 
another word for for charity might be generosity in love. In other words, uh, uh, the ability to be generous in love. And so descriptions like this person's a man of principle or that woman is a woman of integrity. When we use those terms, we say the, the current speaker, if you will, Mike Johnson, he's been described as a man of integrity or a man of principle. Those are assertions about his character. And so a lack of character is a moral deficiency. And persons lacking character can be described as behaving dishonestly, unethically, uncharitably. So some people think of a person's character as the sum of his or her dispositions, thoughts, intentions, desires, actions. It's good to remember that character is gauged by general tendencies, not on the basis of a few isolated actions. You know, when we're thinking about character, is it wrong or is it right to think about their whole life? Blake, I want to do a thought experiment. Are you ready? I'm ready. Do you want people to judge you on the basis of the worst thing that you've ever done or on the basis of the accumulation of the good things that you've done over the course of your life? Honestly, neither. What do you want people to evaluate you on? Everything. Everything I've done in my entire life. Both the good and the bad. Indeedy. Well, you know what? That's a good answer. Because it's good to remember that character is gauged by everything. Not just a few isolated instances, but everything. I think your answer is exactly the right answer. We have to look at the whole life, the good, the bad, the ugly. You know, it's, King David was described as a man of good character in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Um, it says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. He was talking to Saul and he was talking to Saul and that he was going to be removed from the king, best king, and David was going to be the new king. And although David sinned in Second Samuel chapter 11, he was still described as a man after God's own heart. Why? Why? was Saul not described as a man after God's own heart, but David was described as a man after God's own heart. Both of them did what was wrong on occasion. So what was the difference? It would appear that Saul was unwilling or unable, if you will, to repent, to turn from his sin, to call it evil, and to cry out to God for forgiveness and restoration. And although King Ahab may have acted nobly one time in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 35, he was still a man of overall bad character. 
in First Kings chapter 16, verse 33, it says, And Ahab made an azurah, which is a, a, an idol. It's a pole. It was a sexually explicit pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who went before him. So according to the assessment in the scripture, Ahab was a very bad man. And several people in the Bible are described as having noble character. Ruth, for instance. Hanani. David, and of course, Job. In Job chapter 2, verse 3, it says, When the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. In other words, Satan was trying to egg God on to create hardship and pain for Job. And so these people were characterized in the Bible by their character, by their moral virtue. And so I'm going to suggest to you that character in part is influenced and developed by our choices. You know, the Bible says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself in Babylon with the king's sweets. And that godly choice was an important step in formulating, creating, constructing an unassailable integrity in the young man's life. So character, in turn, influences our choices. The integrity of the upright guides them, it says, in, in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 3. So another translation says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. So character will help us weather the storm of life and keep us from sin. How do we know? Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely but he who makes his ways crooked well they'll be found out this is gino geraci thanks for joining me 303-873-1935 that's my number if you'd like to join me on the program 94 7 fm the word crosswalk with gino geraci Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. The number is 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program, 303-873-1935. What's the name of the person who's on the line, um, Blake? Pardon me? Harold. Harold, welcome to the program. Hi, Harold. Hi, Gino. Hi. Um, my question is, I've been reading in Colossians, and, well, anyhow, the word church uh-huh. is used. Paul talks about the church, which is Jesus Christ. So did did Jesus um, 
did Jesus coin the word church? Is that the first time it appears in in church vocabulary? And then what's the rich meaning of the word church? Right. What 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 an interesting question. And there's a couple of ways of answering your question. And and the the first way is that Jesus actually talks about church in Matthew chapter 16 verse 18 when he you know, remember, uh, Peter says, you're the Christ, yeah. the son of the living God. And Jesus basically says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And it's on this statement, if you will, that I will build my church, it says church. in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And in Matthew, the, the word church translates a word, um, the Greek word, Ecclesia, and ecclesia was a Greek word that meant a congregation or an assembly. But from a, from a Hebrew standpoint or from a Greek standpoint, um, from the Hebrew standpoint, it carries with it the idea of a called out covenant group of people. So from 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 a from a Hebrew way of thinking. The people of Israel were a called-out covenant group of people who were called out from the nations, okay? And Christians are a called-out group of people from the nations in a covenant of blood, the sacrifice of Jesus. So the word church, as you and I understand the word from an English standpoint— um, is, uh, is, a, is a word that has come into our vocabulary that more often than not refers to a place or a building, yeah. but, but in the bi- biblical way of thinking about it, it, it's a community or a group of people. So, so to your point, how do we think about this rich word um, and it's, it's, the implications of that word. Now, there are, mm-hmm. I, I have scholar friends who believe that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and um, but I have every reason to believe that the Greek language and and the translation that we have in the Greek language um, is important and adequate. And so, but so the whole point becomes. The emphasis isn't on the place where you pray, but rather on the person that you are and then the people who you associate with in that congregation. So in my view, the church is given tasks, okay? And the task of the church is to love the Lord and to glorify the Lord. The church is supposed to be a place where we display God's grace, where it becomes it becomes the missional point to evangelize the world. And so the church isn't literally a place to evangelize the world, but the place where we prepare evangelists to go out into the world. And the church, of course, baptizes believers and instructs believers and edifies believers and disciplines believers and then provides fellowship for believers. And so the church is supposed to be a place where believers take care of each other. 
there's an interesting passage in Romans chapter 11 where Paul hints that that this called out assembly of people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah exists also in part to provoke Israel to jealousy. And so can you say that again? I I said in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 14, Paul seems to indicate that Gentiles are saved in this sense, that that, remember their sins are forgiven, they're Uh accepted by God and reconciled to God, in Uh part to provoke Israel to jealousy. In other words, the idea Uh being, how come you're saved? I, I don't get it. You're not a Jew. You don't keep Torah, you don't keep the Jewish traditions, you don't keep uh, the Jewish customs, how in the world and why in the world would God accept you? And Paul's argument is, you're accepted in Christ. You're accepted in the beloved. You're chosen, adopted, and accepted, and then placed into an an ecclesia. Remember, it's an assembly who get to gather together on the basis of what Jesus has done by his sacrifice. So uh, so the Jews used the term synagogue for their gathering place. But right. they could never use, it wouldn't work. They couldn't call it a church because it well, doesn't have the same mission. There's an Aramaic equivalent of synagogue. But again, the synagogue, like the the issue of church, also wouldn't necessarily refer to a building, although synagogues were in buildings, and I've been in ancient synagogues that date all the way uh-huh. back to the first century. But in Revelation 2.9 and in Revelation 3.9, we read about a synagogue of Satan. It, it's not a reference to a building or a place. Uh-huh. It, it, it's, it's a reference to a place where people gather to worship. And so the Hebrew idea of synagogue would have been very, very similar to the Greek idea of ecclesia. So in in the sense of an assembly of people. And so it would so because of their culture and their circumstances in their culture and circumstances, the synagogue also served as a place of community gathering. So it was a place of community gathering, of instruction, and all of that yeah. other stuff. But then did the Christians abandon the term synagogue? They wanted their own term for their place of worship? As I don't think so. Be- I, uh, in other okay. words, they don't imba- abandon the word, but rather they incorporate the idea of a called-out assembly who gather together for a common purpose. And in okay. the case in the case of the early church like in Acts chapter 2 is remember it was for instruction for to to to, to sing, to worship, uh, to break bread and to listen to the apostles doctrine. Yeah. And and so in that sense it's modeled on um the synagogue setting. In the synagogue setting, you would have an instructor, and you would have people who were instructed. 
and and in the synagogue you would open up the Torah or the scriptures and in the New Testament you would also open up the Torah and the scriptures but then as the letters became more and more prevalent the letters of of Paul and then the letters of James and John and then the gospels these yeah. letters were read in the assembly in the ecclesia Then I think you already answered my question, but I do have one other short part. Of there's a little, there's a little Sunday school song the kids sing: "I am the church, you are the church, we are the church together." Right. That's right. Then. That's right. Oh, it's okay. simple, but it's right. Yeah. It's accurate. Yeah, we are it, the church. All right. Thanks a lot, Gino. Exactly. Hey, thank you for your call. Three zero three eight seven three nineteen thirty five. When we come back, I'm happy, happy, happy to take your calls, to answer your questions. 303-873-1935. Hopefully we'll have some other things to talk about when we come back. This is Gino Geraci. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 